Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Risk and the retail investor. Will new European legislation make it easier or more confusing to assess how risky our investment choices might be? Professor John Kay joins me to discuss... And regardless of risk, do you have to be male to be a successful investor? A new book of investment rules features 67 men and just one woman. Fidelity's Micah Curry joins me to vent. And are your finances in the doldrums after Blue Monday? Consumer finance expert Georgie Frost and Helen Judney, better known as the complaining cow, are here to talk about credit card deals and cut price getaways. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT Money Editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. New European legislation promised to make it easier for small investors to assess the riskiness of their investments, as well as improving transparency around fees and charges. Professor John Kay, the FT columnist who's also a board director of an investment trust, is not impressed, however, and he tells us exactly why in this weekend's issue of FT Money. Joining me now on the line, welcome John. Morning, Claire. So, strong words in your article this week. You think that the new documentation investment trusts have to provide under the new rules are thoroughly misleading for investors. It's very disappointing, really, that the idea of providing information to retail investors in a standardised form that people can compare is a good one. But these documents not only don't enable people to do that, but they give people information if they took seriously. It would cause them to make really quite bad decisions. And what really brought that home to me was looking at the document for Scottish Mortgage, which tells you that in a moderate scenario, you can expect to earn 23% a year over the next five years. Well, I hope no one will take that seriously or invest on the basis of it. You're so concerned, in fact, you say in your piece that you think it would be better if retail investors didn't even look at the key information document or the KID, which is this new information format that investment firms have to provide. Why is that? Yes, I do. And there are three bits of quantitative information the document provides. One is the risk rating. The other is performance numbers that appear under the heading, what you might expect. And the third is charges. If we take these one by one, risk rating is based essentially on the weekly volatility of the share price of what you're investing in over the last five years. That means, as I say in the article, that if the fund manager were actually stealing your money, so long as the fund manager stole at a constant rate, you'd be in a low-risk investment. That's just nonsense. In a short-term, volatility is not what risk means or ought to mean to a retail investor. Risk, as I see it, is the risk that your long-term investment objectives are not met. And that's 
saving for retirement, it's a decent standard of living and retirement. If you're saving to buy a house, it's that you're able to buy the deposit and so on. The truth is the whole exercise is probably misconceived because to say what a risk means to an investor, you have to look at the investor and not just how the investment. The second piece of information you give is these performance scenarios, and that's much the most serious problem. Because what it is, although the, the details of it are extremely complicated, basically all it is is taking the last five years' performance and describing that as what you might expect, which is how, because Scottish Mortgage has done pretty well over the last five years, it tells you that what you might expect is what you would have got over the last five years. Well, I wish that. I hope it would be true. But nobody at all should invest on that expectation. It would be better if these what you might expect scenarios just weren't there. And it is a bit of a, it is rather depressing that after regulators have rightly told people for years that past performance is no guide to future performance, that these documents do exactly that. And the third element of the information provided is a charges information. And again, it really is a good idea that there should be transparency and greater information about what charges and investment products are. But I think everyone who's looked at it has struggled with the question of how you can actually find a measure of charges that is sensible and on a comparable basis across different investment products. And I'm afraid they haven't managed to do it. So all in all, it would be better if people just didn't look at this information. Well, a sober assessment there of the key information documents. But assessing whether we have the right level of risk in our own portfolios is clearly a very important thing. So if the kid can't help us, how else could we be thinking about it? Well, I think there are two ways of doing it. One is you you might be able to talk to a good financial advisor. Oh, and if you haven't got a good financial advisor, or even if you do, you might do well to read my book, which talks quite a bit about what risk should mean to a retail investor. But the first thing you have to decide is what you're saving for. And people, I think, fall into three or four groups. There are people who are saving for their retirement, people who are saving for some specific purpose, buy a property to educate their children. There are a lot of people who just really don't know what they're saving for. And there are people who are saving for an emergency fund for a rainy day. So first of all, you need to make that decision. And secondly, risk for you is not about volatility. Risk is about you've defined these objectives. Is there a very good chance that your portfolio will be able to meet them? And for that purpose, I think what you need to do is to look at your investment portfolio as a whole, not at the individual elements of it. And that's the real difficulty with this, or one of the major difficulties with this approach to kids, that you're asking people, is this a risky investment or not a risky investment? And that's not the same as looking at the whole portfolio. And the big example of that at the moment is bonds are not a risky investment in the way in which this approach defines it, the kid approach. Mm. because bonds are not very volatile. But they're a very risky investment if you're saving for your retirement because at current yields, the chances that you can enjoy a decent retirement, more or less however much you save, if you put it in bonds, is very low. Well, thanks very much there to Professor John Kay. You can read the full article, Risk and the Retail Investor, in the money section of the FT Weekend newspaper this Saturday or online from Friday on ft.com slash money.
Coming up on The Money Show, how to beat the Blue Monday marketing gimmicks. But first, where are all the female investors? That was the question FT Money columnist and Fidelity Investment Director Micah Curry asked when she was sent the latest investment tome, Harriman's Book of Investment Rules, detailing the do's and don'ts of the world's best investors. However, she and I were dismayed to see that out of the 68 commentators within the book, just one was a woman. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome, Micah. Hi, Claire. So tell us more about this book. Well, I received a complimentary copy of the book around Christmas time. I was very excited. It's a beautiful book. We've got a copy next to us. It's a hardback. It's well designed with some beautiful illustrations on the cover. In fact, it's probably an investment in its own right in this era of declining print and growing digital. But what really bothered me about the book was that the editor dubs this as a fresh selection of the most interesting and eloquent exponents of as wide a range of investing approaches. Yet there's only one one lonely female voice in this book. Now, the purpose of the column wasn't to write a book review or even have a, a rant. The purpose was to, to point out that there are, in fact, female voices out there. Yes, there's some very good investors profiled in this book, names like Richard Buxton, Ian Heslop, Nick Train, and, of course, Fidelity legend Anthony Bolton. And I personally hold Harriman in high regard as a publisher. Just a few years ago, they published my own book on income investing. But there's a bigger issue here, and it's not about whether men or women run your money or who are the better investors. The problem is the lack of female voices and the lack of role models create this perception that investing is just for men. And as long as women are ignored or underrepresented, whether on an investment board or at an investment conference or in an investment book, such as this, that perception is created. And the numbers reflect this. So in the UK, just around 13% of fund managers are female. Women are far more likely to become doctors, lawyers, accountants than investment managers. Yet investment and financial services more broadly account for an increasingly large slice of most developed world economies. In the UK, it's the country's largest exporting industry. It's the biggest taxpaying sector. And it's one of the biggest employers. Yet women are chronically underrepresented in a very big and important industry. And that's a problem. It's a problem because, one, women make up half of the population. Often we manage the purse strings. Increasingly, women are the main breadwinner. Women outlive men. And they're more likely than not to be the people teaching children about money. And we also know that investing matters. So unless you are fortunate enough to have very wealthy parents or to come into an inheritance or to win the lotto, the only way that you can change your financial destiny is through investing. And that's why both genders need to be engaged with investing. And that's why we need role models, including female role models. And Claire, you can take most industries and you are likely to find a female role model. You know, science has Marie Curie, business has Sheryl Sandberg, but investment and the investment industry is pitifully lacking in female role models. So this is arguably a problem for the asset management industry. So it's a crack and, you know, you are a woman working within that industry. I would have thought that they would want to crack it because they need our business. And if they're if they're wanting to tempt women like you, like me, like the legion of fans we have listening to the Money Podcast, then surely they have to be in tune with what women want. And if they don't employ very many women and certainly don't champion their rights at work, why should we trust them with our money? Well, it is an issue and it is an issue that asset managers and investment managers are becoming more and more attuned to. Uh, there are a number of theories why there's a lack of women in finance as a profession. Some say that the long and inflexible hours put women off. 
off from entering the industry as women are still the primary caregivers. Hasn't stopped lawyers, journalists, doctors. That's very true. But the biggest challenge and the challenge at Fidelity too is getting women through the pipeline. So most firms do well at hiring women at graduate level, but retention is a big challenge. There's a healthy ratio of about 30 to 40 percent of women at junior associate level, but when we get to fund manager level, that drops off to about 20 to 25 percent. And it's a systemic industry issue going right back to when women, when they leave university and they don't choose it as a career or when they opt out later making decisions about family and childcare. But I am proud of the fact that as a company we are talking about the problem and we are taking proactive steps um, whether it's writing this column, having the space and the freedom to write this column or embarking on a number of initiatives to attract and retain women. And I would say that the jury really is out on whether investment management is a good career or not. I've spoken to a few fund managers and some argue that it is an excellent career for people who want to be judged on results rather than hours spent at their desk. Now, one of the fund managers who I mentioned in the piece is Alexander Jackson. She's a mom of two young daughters and she, she manages UK equity markets. So arguably the market that you cover makes a difference in terms mm-hmm. of the hours that you work. But she says because there's a lot of reading, research and a lot of thinking involved with investment management, you don't have to be glued to your screen all the time. You don't have to be in the office. Someone else like Julie Dean, who's another well-respected manager who quadrupled investors' money when she was managing the Schroeder UK Opportunities Fund, told me that the reason she likes investment as a career is because she can see herself doing this right into her 80s. And she mentions Warren Buffett as a good example. It's not physically strenuous. She can see herself (laughs) having a cup of tea in her 80s and investing with her friends. And I also had a very interesting conversation with Catherine Jung, who is an investment director in Fidelity's Asian equity business. Now, you'd be quite surprised to hear that in Asia, we have the highest representation of women in asset management, more than double the global average. And China, in fact, leads the pack. Now, you could argue why this is, but Catherine makes two very interesting points. First, she points to China's one-child policy. Now, of course, that has been a demographical headache for the country, but it did have a positive outcome in terms of gender equality. When parents are restricted to having only one child, and if that child happens to be a girl, she benefited from being the focus of all their aspirations and investment. And this meant, and you can look up the stats, a significant increase in the participation of women from the one-child generation in higher education. Mm. So the positive outcome of this one-child policy was that girls, especially in China's urban areas, were given as much opportunity to reach their potential as boys. And her second point is around childcare, and obviously we can have another podcast around this, but we know that British parents shoulder some of the highest childcare costs in the world. And Absolutely. this is debilitating to their careers, and more often than not, it is the woman who takes a break from her career. In Asia, good childcare is far more affordable, which makes it financially easier for women to return to their careers. So returning to investment, I think it was Gandhi who said, be the change you want to see in the world. I think you should write a book, (laughs) another book for Harriman. How about it? Well, I am very flattered and I think, you know, I'll be up for it to write a book about both female and male investors. There's just one challenge is finding the time. And yeah, I will indulge in some gender stereotyping. I think women are not as good as men as taking the time out to invest in a little bit of self-promotion. I think men are far better. 
better at that and it's important. And that's probably one of the reasons why we don't have those household names, names rolling off our tongue when we talk about famous female investors. And then the second challenge is finding a publisher, Claire. Maybe the FT can step in. You may have burned your British with Harriman House. Well, thank you very much there to Micah Curry, Investment Director at Fidelity. You can read her column, Where Are All the Female Investors? in the money section of the weekend newspaper this Saturday or online now at FT Money. And if you are interested in obtaining a copy of Harriman's new book of investing rules, it's available in all good bookshops. Recommended retail price is 19 99 If you don't want to read it, it's so large you could probably use it as a doorstop. Have your finances got the January blues? The 15th of January has been unofficially dubbed Blue Monday, as it's the time when most of us have broken our New Year's resolutions, received the Christmas credit card bill, and have hardly anything left in the bank, while our next payday seems an age away. So here to cheer us up are Georgie Frost, the broadcaster and consumer champion for Go Compare, and Helen Judney, the blogger and author better known as The Complaining Cow. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Hello. So starting with Georgie, you did a column for us in FT Money last week about how easy it is for young people in particular to get into trouble with credit card debt. And this attracted a huge amount of attention. Yes, it did indeed. Let me take you back, Claire, to uh, circa 2001, Bristol University, the history department canteen, a bit of an event that I was actually there at all, given how many lectures I had. Uh, There was a stand and I just remember very pretty people beckoning me over to this these sirens saying come over and I thought I was distracted by the fact they were all playing with these little mini footballs and I was mad keen on football you can get yourself a free football if you just sign on the dotted line I thought okay it's a credit card I remember speaking to my friends as well going boom free credit card I've since been told by my friends we also got a free whistle as well but I don't remember that and when I say free I use in inverted commas because yes I did sign up for the credit card which I had no idea what I was signing up to and to be honest I don't think anybody who was signing me up had any idea what was going on either. I tell you what, that credit card lasted a lot longer than that football did. I actually didn't use it at university. I should point out it was always there for me, but perhaps because I didn't really understand how it worked. I never used it. But in the background, I knew I had it. So when a few years later, I actually had a problem with my back. I couldn't work for about a year properly. I remember having this credit card that I'd got. I remember who it was with and I remember calling them up and saying actually you know let's kind of activate this credit card. Let's get it back sent out to me. So rather than exploring options of ways with which I could finance my life I just used a credit card and that got me into a lot of trouble. Years and thousands of pounds of debt later and it was all because... Well, I say it's all because of that bloody football. It's not because of that bloody football. But it is related to the fact that perhaps I should have had a bit more financial savviness, shall I put it that way? I should have known what I was signing up to. It wasn't made clear to me at all, but personal responsibility as well. So your explanation, not just of how easy it is to get into debt, but also of how credit scoring works, was in response to research that the Money Advice Service carried out for the FT, which showed that this is a complete financial mystery to many millennials. And whilst like you they are scared of entering the credit market they also really really want to understand more than anything else how it works i was quite cheered by fantastic research that you guys had done with the money advice service and it was saying that despite boring image and stuff the good news is that young people do do want to learn about money so actually i'm more cheered by young people than certainly i was back in the day but yeah there is certain myths and misconceptions about things like credit reports i mean what does it even mean why is it useful well essentially it's your financial CV. So it tells a lender 
if they want to give you some money, perhaps perhaps you want a credit card or a mortgage or even things like loans or mobile phone contracts, monthly car insurance. It tells them well, whether you're going to pay the money back, essentially. I mean, there's things it doesn't do. It doesn't include your salary. It doesn't include your student loan. It doesn't include driving fines, your medical history. But it just shows anything that you've taken out. So credit cards, for example. So, you know, say that I was going to lend you guys some money and you'll come to me and Helen, I've, I've known you for years and you're brilliant with money. You always pay back. And Claire, I've known you for years as well, but you're rubbish with money. Really rubbish. And Micah, I don't know you at all. I've never met you. You look really sensible and brilliant with money, but I don't know. So that's where it comes quite difficult for young people in as much as, Claire, I'm, no offence, I'm not likely to give you some money because I don't think you're going to pay me back. But Micah, I don't know you at all, so I don't know whether you're going to. And young people have this problem. And that's why I wrote this article. That while credit card wasn't my best friend, actually used well, it could be a young person's best friend because if you just spend a little bit on a credit card, don't max it out for goodness sakes, and don't do it just for the football, read the terms and conditions, then you have a record that's being built up of whether you're a responsible lender or not. So after a year or so, I can say, Michael, you're brilliant and now I've got proof have some money. But there is a bit of a complication with that as well, in as much as I also perhaps want to earn a little bit of money from you. So if you are fantastic, Helen, at paying back all of your bills on time, I realise I'm not going to earn that much money from you. And that's where it gets a little bit confusing, perhaps, for some people. But just in terms of building up some kind of history, that's where credit cards can come in really handy. But read those terms and conditions. Now, this is, of course, the time of year, Blue Monday, when lots of us are facing a bit of a crunch with our finances. And the newspapers are full of adverts from credit card providers saying switch to our 0% deal. I mean, this could, on the one hand, be a good way of dealing with debt, but could also have risks. What are your top tips, Georgie? Well, you're absolutely right. I always say credit cards, to a certain extent, got me in debt and also a bit of personal ignorance as well. But zero balance transfers actually helped me to manage it and to get out of it. So done properly, it can really help. But bear in mind, and this is where credit ratings and credit scores come in as well. If you're making loads and loads of applications for things, sometimes it can leave a mark and it makes other lenders go, ooh, why are you applying for loads of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I wasn't going to use the word, Claire, but you did. Um, You do. You look a bit desperate. So make sure when you're looking at these things, you use perhaps a comparison site that does a soft search. It doesn't have a big, heavy footprint over it. Just only you can see that. And then you'll get an idea of what you're going to be accepted for. Because bearing in mind, only 51% of people have to be accepted for the rate. So it's not necessarily you're going to get turned down, say, for this credit card. They might just say, this representative APR you'll hear a lot about. What they might just say is, okay, so what we've advertised is, let's say, 10%, but we're going to give you 40%. And that's where you need to be really careful to take a look at. And just make sure, you know, there are some which don't have fees, generally their shorter amount of time. So work out what's best for you. And when you get one, for goodness sake, you've got a mobile phone, put it into your mobile phone when the time is up and work out, work back how much you're going to need to pay. Set up a direct debit and cut up the card. If you're just using it just to pay back debt, just to get clear your debt, cut up your card. Yeah, because often the, the interest rate for money, new money that you spend on the card is, you know, really, really high. And the other thing I'd mention is if you make any kind of slip up, whether it's going Absolutely, over your, yeah. your credit limit or paying it back a day late, mm-hmm. then boom, the introductory rate ends. 
and you'll be slapped on to a much higher charge. Exactly. And also some of the stats are quite surprising as well of the number of people that don't pay off those zero balance. Something like over 40% don't actually pay it off within the time. And I think something like 23% of people actually get into worse debt. So really, really, again, I can't say this enough. Double check the terms and conditions. Make sure that this is the right thing for you to do. Don't be one of the 23%. So Helen, turning to you now, you're definitely not in that 23%, but you've noticed how Blue Monday is increasingly being used as a marketing gimmick by the travel companies to sell us holiday deals. Well, that's how it was in the in the first place. It was designed by somebody who for a PR for Sky Travel. And so all the holiday companies have been jumping on the bandwagon for years and it goes in the papers, it goes in the media, Blue Mood Monday, come and buy your holidays. What kind of things should money readers and listeners be looking out for if they are indeed tempted to book a holiday, have a look online in these well, dark days of January? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems pretty obvious, really, but shop around. I mean, lots of people just don't do it. They think there's the bargain. It's there in neon lights. It's there on the you know, on the door in the shop. It isn't necessarily the best deal. And that's just to get you into the shop or it's just to get you onto the site. So do shop around. Try lots of different sites before booking. So that's your package the hotel and the flight separately, even for the same place. Look at all those different things on different sites. Making sure you clear the cookies before going back to any site. Yeah, uh, that is a really, really good tip, clearing the cookies. And a, a lot of people maybe don't know how to do that or don't know what it means. Yeah, go into the history and it'll say your cookies and just clear it. Delete all your cookies. We'll delete other things as well. But it's where the site has, has remembered you. So quite often, if you've been looking at a holiday and then you've gone back to it and you've gone back to it and suddenly you see that the price has gone up £50, it's because because the site's remembered you've been at that site and think, oh, you're really interested in this holiday. I might just bump up the price and you might not notice because you were there two days ago and it's gone up for two days. It hasn't clear your cookies and you might see it go down. Goodness me. Well, that would get me stamping my hooves. And you teamed up with other money bloggers to fight back against the marketing hogwash. There were some good tips that we ran in the issue last week from them and you about what to do if you think you've been sold a dud deal. Certainly. I mean, uh, obviously, I'm I'm (laughs) never banging on about your rights. So, you know, you've got the consumer protection from unfair trading regulations 2008. And there's particularly the, the package travel, package holidays and package tour regulations 1992. So, for example, if you see something on the site, that's misled you to buying a, a holiday and actually it's not quite what you said or that you know it said it was a family friendly holiday and it's actually you know it's not no children allowed or you know it's something like that and you've bought that you've certainly got rights there to to get your redress and all kinds of tips came in I, I quite like the one about hire cars holiday hire cars even if you leave it to the last minute to book your holiday you shouldn't leave the hire car for that long because they're the things that can really really shoot up in price and of course those salespeople in the airport lounge are so insistent when it comes to buying the excess waiver insurance absolutely it's always 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 about your research do the research and making sure that you buy the extras like insurance and car hire from other sites i've never known anybody get it cheaper from booking it at the same time as the as the firm is selling you the holiday and the well, package definitely not i mean our last holiday to sicily which is famous for its rude and aggressive drivers we were quoted something like 300 euros for the excess waiver at the airport desk but i'd already bought an annual policy with a British insurer online for £32. Yeah, that's certainly one way of doing it. We've certainly looked at, you know, when you sort of go to Spain, for example, that you look at their local car hire companies. You don't have to do it through all our, you know, the the main ones that you know of here. And the prices range just for hiring it for a week were incredible. But you have to look at what's 
covered, obviously, because uh, some will not have the insurance, some will have an additional, you know, waiver, and some will have different minimums. So you need to weigh all that up when you're looking. But it's always about doing your research and making sure you're not buying it just because it's there and it's easy. You can save a fortune. Now, talking of books and authors as we were earlier, of course, you are a woman and an author, and you have written your own book all about how to complain. Shall I give it a nice big plug? You may, (laughs) in return for your excellent advice. Thank you. It's um, How to Complain, The Essential Consumer Guide to Getting Refunds, Redress and Results. And it really is a good read if you've got a specific problem that you want to complain about or you're just a bit argy-bargy like me and like to have a bit of a moan when you've received crap service from a financial services provider then do get a copy thanks very much there to helen judney and georgie frost you can read more about blue monday and credit scoring on our website now ft.com slash money that's it from the ft money show this week to get in touch with our team of writers or to ask one of our experts to look into a financial dilemma please email us our address money at ft.com or tweet us at ft money and don't forget you can read all of the articles mentioned and more on our website ft.com slash money we'll be back next week at the usual time goodbye support for this podcast and the following message come from corient Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.